we forget sometimes is to most newbies, they're not thinking about, they just go, that, that looks great to me. That feels great yeah, on my wrist. Right. And then all of a sudden somebody tells you from outside, oh, you shouldn't be looking at that watch. Or, oh, no, 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 That's not one of the Holy Trinity or whatever it is, right? Yeah. By the way, I've been guilty of that without even thinking about it to especially closer friends of mine, but it's not necessarily the, hey, you're wearing this cool ceramic Daytona or you're wearing this cool Patek Nautilus or whatever. It's like those kind of watches that are a little bit more personal. Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverant and this is Hodinky Radio. If you've been following the site at all lately, you'll notice this is a pretty busy time of year for us. Everyone's traveling, we're working on a ton of different projects, and it's not too often that we get a bunch of our editors to sit down and chat. So it was a real treat for me this week to get to sit down with John and Cole to talk a little bit about what they've been working on. I've been doing my own thing and uh, they've been doing some really great work and it was exciting to get to hear what they've been working on. Cole traveled across the pond to the Goodwood Revival to check out vintage cars and watches. He put together an incredible story on trench watches and sort of the early days of the wristwatch. He also went to Shanghai, China with Oris for the release of their Big Crown Pro Pilot X, which shows off a different side of the brand. And while he was doing that, John was in Switzerland uh, reporting on Chopard's new Alpine Eagle luxury sport watch uh, and getting the next issue of the Hodinkee magazine out the door. So he's going to give us a little bit of a sneak peek at that. Then the main event this week is my conversation with Mr. Dave Park, a Hollywood agent, watch guy, and all-around gentleman extraordinaire. Uh, Dave's a partner at United Talent Agency, and he's someone who really knows the Hollywood scene forwards and backwards. We talk about what exactly an agent does, uh, how growing up watching sitcoms at home got him to where he is today, and what the current watch trends are out in LA. Dave's someone I always see when I'm on the West Coast, and I think you're really going to enjoy our chat. But first up, my conversation with John and Cole. Hey guys, good to see you. Good to see you. Pleasure is mine, Stevie P. We've been uh, we've been all over the place lately. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, I realized uh, we wanted to get you guys both here because I realized uh, talking to Gray, our, our producer here, that uh, neither of you had been on the show for a little while. Yeah, and I definitely felt like something was missing in my existence. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm I. That's what I like that. to hear, Cole. That's that's what I'm here for. Uh, it's because you guys have been heads down on projects. You, Cole, have been traveling, and John's John's been working on the magazine. Uh, Cole, where have you been? Where where you're back in New York now? But where have you been in the world? Back in New York, uh, first stop was in the east in uh, Shanghai, China. Then went over to Goodwood in the south of England, and yeah, now I'm back here. So to three different continents there. So it was good. Look at you jet setting all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> you had to warm Shanghai up for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, you, I, I was scoping it out to make sure it was safe for you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and John, you've been you've been doing magazine stuff. Yeah, I've been pretty heads down on the magazine, uh, Hodinkee Magazine, Volume Five. Volume it's, Five, man. Yeah, that's crazy. It's hard to believe that we're that we're already uh, now five uh, issues in. And it's a fantastic one, truly. It's done, right? Oh, it's all it's done. It's with the printer, and uh, we'll have we'll have copies in the first week of November. 
Okay, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Shout out to Fritz, our printer. Now yeah. it's his turn. He's yeah. got to. He's got to do the hard work now. Yeah. He'll. No, he always does a great job for us, and uh, we uh, we expect him to do it again. It'll be great. Anything you want to tease, or do we have to kind of sit tight? Uh, I. You know, forgive me if I'm a, a little bit coy, but I'll, okay. I'll I'll mention just kind of general ideas about a few uh, of the okay. features. Um, our own uh, Cole Pennington, who's with us. Uh, wrote, I would say, an incredible uh, investigative piece about uh, a watch that was lost for a very long time and recently was... <laughs> That's un- sufficiently <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and was recently unearthed, we'll say, and okay. uh, is back with uh, its owner's family. Um, but you will have to read uh, the magazine to find out a little bit more about that. Cool. It's a good one. It's a good one. It is a really good one. Uh, yeah. It was a really fun one to edit, especially because I kind of purposefully stayed out of it for most of it. Uh we always try to keep like somebody to be a fresh set of eyes, like toward the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got to be the fresh set of eyes on this one. So I didn't really know what to expect. And the story went through a bunch of different drafts some revisions. We found some additional facts and then I got to read it. And it was, it's fun. Like rarely do I get the experience like the readers get where like I get to come in at the end and see like the fully formed polished thing mm-hmm. uh, and have that like moment of surprise. So it was a fun one. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too much work for you editing. It. I mean, for me, it wasn't. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, a great, it's a great story. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just happy that this issue, we were able to bring a lot of new voices yeah. uh, to the publication, uh, not just writers, but also photographers. We had some really talented people come in and uh, I think do an amazing job for us. So definitely pick up a copy when it becomes available. Awesome. I'm going to drag you back in here. We're going to have to do a whole uh, magazine episode as we get closer. I would love to do that. Awesome. Perfect. And Cole uh, Goodwood, how was Goodwood? Goodwood. Yeah, Goodwood. I mean, it's it's literally a total immersion in another place in space and time. And so which, uh, this was the Goodwood Revival, This right? is Goodwood Revival. So yeah, there are two Goodwoods. Long story short, Lord March is the Duke of Richmond now, needed to find a way to revive his property. So he you know, had a natural interest in motorsport and so forth. And I think 1992 was the first Goodwood Festival of Speed. Okay. And then the revival came. I believe that's that was the order. But uh, long story short, yeah, it's uh, the revival is a period, 1944 to 67. Okay. Right about there. The Goodwood property was a racetrack during that time. Okay. And so this revival is revisiting what cars may have raced on the track at that time. And everyone comes dressed to the nines like they would have back you had then. a pretty good hat situation going on yeah yeah i got a, i got an old 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 hat from my gramps uh, i got it restored and uh down here in soho actually and uh wore it and put on some uh period suits and uh yeah tried to i even tried to do like a little bit of a uh, accent and so forth. Oh but man, it, I it, love it. Oh, man. Should we do a hokey no. revival? <laughs> yeah, I can't yeah, do it. Come on, you it. can't put me on the spot. You can't put me on the spot. All right, all but, right. We should do a Hodinky revival. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that really. What would period be. would we revive? I have no idea. I, I think like where, we let where Jack we're pick. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll let Jack pick. Yeah. It'll be like the 1840s. It'll be amazing. <laughs> While Carrie Pocket is that the Bella Poke or is that no? That's a little no, bit no, later. no. Yeah, that's okay. a little later. But we could do that. That'd be fun. Uh all right, so you, you did Goodwood. You covered it for the site. Covered it for the site. And um, one thing I didn't, I mean, I did watch spotting there. Yeah. And really cool. I mean, some people actually followed the rules and wore watches from the period. Cool. But as you can imagine, there's not many surviving. I mean, not everyone has a watch from the 40s, 50s, or 60s. Yeah. So plenty of new stuff. But yeah, it was very cool. Very cool. And uh, Rolex is one of the headline sponsors there, so... Rolex gave out some watches to the winners. Cool. Any were... highlights of watches you saw while you were there? Anything from the period that really stood out? From the period. To be honest, 
a lot of unbranded stuff from the period. Oh. Stuff that I couldn't ID right away. I mean, the, the coolest thing was definitely the diversity, for sure. But there was this one GP that stood out and had this brilliant dial that uh, instead of radiating from the center like a sunburst dial would, yeah. it almost go, comes from the 6 o'clock position. Oh, cool. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, it almost, yeah, it's very cool. That, that, that was a highlight. Uh, I'm sorry, was, what, what period was this from? Uh, so it's actually, it was worn by an, an automotive writer named Connor Golden and he, he got it from his grandfather. Gotcha. And I think he said, uh, fifties. Oh yeah. 50s -ish. Cold, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So that was one. And then there was this, uh, incredibly classy old German lady wearing this absolutely iced out Rolex, Yeah, which was so cool. And she was wearing a fur coat. I mean, it's not, it's not cold. Wearing no, this it's not cold. glamorous fur coat and this iced out rolly. And it was, and when I asked to take her picture, she was, she, she definitely, she was all about it. Okay, oh, cool. Yeah, it was great. So before that though, let's, let's go back to Shanghai for okay. just a second. Right? right. So why were you in Shanghai? That not that, just to warm it up for me. Yeah. Well, that, that was one thing I just <laughs> needed to scope it out, you know? Um, well, I guess that points to a larger question. Why are you in Shanghai? Why is Shanghai important? And I think, the reason I was there was to cover the launch of an Oris watch. The better question to ask is, why was Oris in Shanghai? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we don't typically... This is super interesting. I'll get to this a little bit later. But uh, Shanghai is an incredibly important market within China. And China is a very important market in the world. Yeah. Um, we don't really think about how big it is, right? For every main city we have here, the throughput of watches from boutiques, second tier cities in China do double or triple that. Right. So volume wise, it's incredibly important. And I think finally brands are coming around to saying, Hey, we're going to do a global launch in a market where it's just as important. In fact, probably more important than Switzerland in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why th there was no, you know, Shanghai didn't inspire the watch or anything like that. It was it's simply that it's an important place. It's yeah. an important market, and this is where they chose to do a global launch. Yeah, I mean, not every... I mean, we think of, like, the traditional places where these things happen are either Switzerland or maybe New York, maybe L.A., maybe yeah. London or Paris, mm -hmm. maybe. Right. Occasionally, I guess you get something, maybe, like, uh, yeah, Hong Kong. Yeah, funky stuff, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that Shanghai is... It's a huge, important global city that there's a lot of money to be spent, and... Exactly. Uh, there's a lot of customers there. And and I do. Before I forget, I want to give a shout out to the Shanghai Watch Gang. Oh, yeah. yeah, the yes. Shanghai Watch Gang guys yeah, are awesome. Serious. So yeah. uh, that, I hung out with those guys a little bit, and you realize that you know the, the hobby completely transcends cultural differences. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're a watch guy, you're a watch guy. They do the same thing we do here, and uh, maybe even to a larger degree. I mean, yeah. those, those guys bring the heat. Dude, those <laughs> guys don't mess around <laughs> don't. at all. Yeah. Um, so the Oris that you saw there, you yep. wrote about it for the site. That's right. Uh, can you tell us about this watch? It's kind of not, I think, what most of our listeners probably associate with Oris. I think like most of the guys listening, most of the people listening, uh, probably think like Diver 65, right? Yeah. This is a different thing. Yeah. So I guess this is, this is really a testament to the fact that Oris is an independent manufacturer and they have the capability to do something, that, to execute to a higher degree than we're used to. We have to acknowledge the capabilities there, right? So the ProPilot is kind of, uh, 
it's an exercise in doing that. It's a watch. And what's the what's the full name of this watch? Oris Pro Pilot X. Okay. Yeah. So the X kind of stands for experimental. Okay. Not ten. Um, not ten. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is not the Pro Pilot ten. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. Um, but basically, what it does is it reminds us that yeah, Oris has the capability to do all these things. They are a totally fully integrated manufacturer, and uh, the actual watch itself is just totally wild it's done in titanium it has these crazy facets on the case has an integrated bracelet uh it's not what we're used to from Morris, and the price point is also not what we're used to from Morris either but if you think about it it makes complete sense uh, given the expertise they've developed in the aviation watch segment and diver and just producing movements they, they've produced their own calibers forever right so yeah that's yeah, it's kind been a while of, now. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the the gist of that watch. It's very cool. I, I I think it's a great move for us personally. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a skeletonized ten day movement. Uh, the watch basically has no dial, right? Like the registers yeah. kind of like float exactly over the top. Uh, and like you said, the price is not what you normally think of no. for Morris. It's what seventy six hundred, I think, yeah, uh, yeah, on the bracelet, 7, 000, which. Yeah. That's that's real change, you know? Yeah. yeah. There are other watches at that price point that you would definitely consider before this, but I think this is worthy of consideration. One cool thing to mention about the 10-hour the power reserve is that the hand moves incrementally as the power reserve depletes, meaning, like, you don't really care when you have 10 to... Five hour or uh, Oh, you're talking about the display is, like, graduated so that, yeah, so graduated. that as you get down to it, it, moves. it becomes more specific. Exactly. That's cool. Um, and, That's you, cool. And, and it's calibrated so that you can see when you have like less than X amount of hours on it. Because mm-hmm. you don't really care when it's fully wound. Who cares, you know? Yeah. But yeah. only towards the end do you start to care. So that's that's what's really interesting about this watch to me. And uh, I, think I, I think I just said 10-hour power reserve. It's not. It's 10-day power reserve. Very different. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> a fact time, time passes differently for us all, Steve. Yeah, yeah, right. We <laughs> each get to do our own thing here. Do you think that the launch in China has anything to do with Oris thinking that this watch specifically might do well there? Do you think this is a launch kind of mm. targeted at that market, or do you think it's, it's a much broader sort of strategy question? I think it's a hat tip to an incredibly important market. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, and these numbers were not ever confirmed, but this may be their first or second largest market that they operate in, right? Okay. So that's probably why. I don't think there's anything about the watch, although I will say that this market tends to like flashier, in-your-face yeah. kind of uh, watches, and this is to a degree that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's just a launch, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? So before we go to a story that John wrote about another release, I, I do want to touch on for a minute kind of the opposite of of the ProPilot X, uh, which is another type of watch that you wrote about recently, uh, which are these little World War One trench watches, yeah. um, which are kind of the opposite. Like, they're not big, they're not in your face, they're not high tech. They're like the sort of simplest, smallest, like almost the like smallest unit of wristwatch that yeah. one could hope for. <laughs> it's true. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the story you wrote? I, I, you yeah. don't have to walk through the whole <clears throat> thing. No, I'll, I'll touch upon it here. I think... The, the angle of the story, what stood out to me was just how beautiful these things were. And yeah. how, how, what, what I said, elegance is really, they, they radiate elegance. Roman numerals, blued hands. I mean, the blued hands are something, I mean, these watches, they look like longest of today, you know? Yeah. They're really beautiful. 
And I think the irony is that, yeah, these were actually watches worn for war, which nowadays when you think about military watches, Benner's Type 1, Type 2, Marathon Navigator, G-Shock, things that you know don't look nice. I, right. I, I find them beautiful, sure, yeah. from an industrial perspective, but the trench watches are really cool because they could have been, you know, throw a nicer uh, bracelet on it or something, and that's a dress watch. Yeah, you know, it's a proper dress watch too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the ones, one of the ones I really liked uh, was this Enicar that has this like teardrop case, and there's a compass actually embedded in the yeah. case below where the movement is. It's a really weird little like time capsule artifact. It really is. Um, but it's it's kind of it speaks to a bygone very early era of the yeah, wristwatch. I mean, yeah. Very early. We'll link the story up. People should go check it out. And and you know we've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but trench watches are, are really important in the history of the wristwatch. They're yeah, they're the first wristwatch. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The, the first popular wristwatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. So I want to finish things off uh, since we can't go a single week on the show without talking about stainless steel integrated bracelet sport watches because I. I don't even know anymore, um, but we can't. So, uh, John, amidst all of the magazine craziness, you somehow found time uh, to introduce a new collection from Chopar, the uh, the Alpine Eagle collection, which is the latest entrant into the uh, sport watch category, the integrated bracelet sport watch category. Can you give us the kind of uh, TLDR of... Uh, mm-hmm what this collection is? Yeah. I mean, so as, as Steven mentioned, we're talking about watches with, you know, steel sport watches with integrated bracelets all the time. Uh, they represent a huge percentage of the total watches, I think over a certain value that, uh, come out of that are sold, uh, every year. And so, you know, for many, for many brands, I think they're waking up and seeing that not having one in their repertoire is probably a mistake. Um, and that was the case with Chopard. This this watch, the Alpine Eagle, has was I think about five years in development, and uh, they got the idea to do it when um, the youngest generation of you know. For those who don't know, Chopard is a family-owned and uh, managed uh, company based in Switzerland, and when they're the youngest uh, generation of the family uh, happened to spy one uh, in the office and said, "What is that?" It was not an Alpine Eagle. It was a watch that came out in 1980 called the Saint Moritz. And um, kind of made it his mission to get the St. Moritz remade. They couldn't call it the St. Moritz because another watchmaker currently has a deal with the municipality oh, of St. Moritz. And so that's why it's not the return of the St. Moritz and, and it's the launch of the Alpine Eagle. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a good looking steel sports watch. There are some gold and uh, two-tone versions available as well. There's uh, seven references for women, uh, three or seven smaller references, I'll say. I won't say that they're for women necessarily, uh, because I, I think uh, one or two of the uh, smaller ones could work for a guy as well. And then there's uh, three larger 41 millimeter uh, pieces. But yeah, they're good looking watches. They both have, uh, both sizes have chronometer rated uh, in-house movements from Chopard and um, some really magnificent dials. Uh, the that, dials are amazing. The dials are, are totally beautiful. Yeah, they're uh, my they're, favorite thing about the watch by yeah, far. I, th- I think they're great too. I also think that uh, the stainless steel that they're using is really interesting. Uh, it's something called, I think, Lucent 223. Okay. Uh, and that references uh, the hardness of the steel. It's 223 Vickers as opposed to like about 150, which is, I think, more or less standard for uh, the kind of steel that you'll see in watches. And... I think this will have an interesting application for a watch of this type. Um, when I say this type, I mean, you know, uh, these, these 
watches that kind of reference 70s watch design that have uh, a lot of facets, have a lot of contrast uh, surfaces with contrasting finishings. Screws. What? Screws. Screws, exactly. Yeah. And I think that uh, I think that those types of watches, in my experience anyway, tend to show off scratches more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so using this, this harder steel in a type of watch design that I think is typically prone to showing scratches is a smart move. And we'll see if these, uh, if these end up wearing, uh, wearing better over time than, than some of their competitors. Um, they're also uh, pretty affordably priced. You know, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they're they're we think of these as, you know, we'll just call it like it is, right? Like you think of this as a competitor to like the Nautilus or right. the Royal Oak. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's priced significantly lower than significantly that. lower. They yeah. start around what, like twelve thousand dollars in steel? Yeah, like twelve thousand nine hundred. So around thirteen thousand. But that's yeah. that's well well uh, That's half the price of, of like yeah. a fifteen two oh two, you know? Yeah. So I mean so almost to say that they're a competitor of, of a Nautilus, I think is not is not hundred percent accurate because they're in a totally different price segment. Yeah. Um but uh, they're definitely they're I you know, it's I think it's very smart for a brand uh, to come out with a watch that is going to scratch that itch, that steel sport watch itch for people who have the money and the inclination, but just can't, can't get uh, their, their absolute top choice. I have a quick question. Yeah. So the name Alpine Eagle right. just screams to me. Yeah. I, I need to know the creation story. Okay. Like, so the, yeah. the name itself was primarily born out of the inability, I think, to use the name St. Moritz. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, the, the co-president of Chopard, Carl Friedrich Schäufele was, uh, you know, skiing one day, uh, he was uh, working on this project up at his family's uh, ski chalet in in Stad, as one does, as one does. Yeah. And uh, he happened to see an alpine eagle, uh, you know, soaring above him. And I guess it's a pretty a rare occurrence in Switzerland these days. It's a it's a threatened uh, species. Okay, so it is an actual. It's like a bald eagle or a golden eagle. Yeah, exactly. It's the alpine yeah. eagle. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's what I, that's so I'm told. Yeah. And uh, the dials themselves are supposed to reference the iris uh, of the eagle's eye. Ooh, yeah. I like They do that. have this like sort yeah. of swirly, totally like do. multi-tone thing. Yeah, I mean, we should, I think li- we should link up the story. Yeah, if we'll link up to, the story for sure. It's an introducing post with uh, with live pics so you can see our own pictures of these yeah. watches. It's interesting. I think, I think we're reaching this point now where we're, we've almost like, we've almost come through the, the period of like, Everybody doing the oh I would like hand raising like oh I'll have I'll have a steel sport watch oh I'm gonna make a steel sport watch mm-hmm. we've like almost come through it now to the point where it's just like expected like yeah. it's no longer copycatting it's just like everyone has one in their collection it's just like how everyone has a dive watch with a rotating bezel like yeah. everyone now basically has to have a steel sport watch with an integrated bracelet or like you're just not gonna sell that many watches right, right now which yeah. you know an important thing to remember. Uh, and I think I've, I've said this before on the show is like these companies are not like artists creating watches to keep the diehard enthusiasts happy and feeling inspired. Like they're businesses, they're giant multinational corporations and they have to stay in business. And like, if this is what customers are buying, like this is what, companies have to make like they need to make money at the end of the day right let's hope some people in those companies are still making watches for the enthusiasts yeah though. yeah and they are yeah. and and that's a good thing but i think you know it's it's no i mean the the enthusiast reaction to you know the alpine eagle and to bell and ross released a, an integrated bracelet watch a couple weeks ago uh that we talked about here but like the diehard enthusiast reaction is to like finger wag and be sure. like, oh, yeah. this isn't a Royal Oak. This isn't a Nautilus. Everybody's just copycats. Yeah. But like, 
these are companies. Like yeah, they don't have any companies. obligation to your yeah. like sense of propriety. Right. Like they they need to stay in business. And, and I will say too, in the case of Bell and Ross and Inchopard, like I think I think both of these brands deserve a pass. I think we shouldn't uh, be overly critical of them. One, you know, Bell and Ross is a watchmaker that, for all, all it's for basically since it's existed, has referenced historical watches that they didn't make and they're totally open about it. Yeah. That's kind of like, it's, true. it's their, it's like their shtick if they're, if you will. Right. That's, yeah. what, that's what Bell and Ross does. And then Chopard, you know, I had a chance to catch up with Carl Friedrich Schäufele, uh, yesterday morning. I, yeah. I had an event here in New York and, uh, he told me that if, you know, if the St. Moritz hadn't been a watch in their back catalog, he definitely would have thought twice about coming into this space. But you know, the fact that this is something that they've already done, that's part of their own history, uh, just to him helped uh, make it make a lot more sense, I think. Yeah, yeah. sure. Cool. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna call that a wrap for today. I'm off to Japan on Friday. You guys traveling? I'm off to work. Normally, normal. <laughs> okay. <work>. Yeah. <laughs> John, you're off to uh, Vancouver to print the magazine, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the files are with the printer, but uh, we go off uh, every issue and just and do a little uh, quality control. I guess we we look at uh, the printing as it happens. Nice. Uh, to make sure that it's as perfect as we can make it for you. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, look forward to sitting down with you guys again soon when I'm back. And uh, thanks for this. Thank you. Thank you, Stevie P. And next up, from a recent trip to L.A., my conversation with Mr. Dave Park. Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Uh, I guess it's been a while, I think. It has been a little while. Um, you know, we've both been busy, but it's good to see you for yeah. sure. <laughs> busy might be a, uh, an understatement. Yes. But yeah. Uh, we first met, I guess, when we did the UTA Hodinkee partnership last year, right? Yes. And, uh, which was quite a success and people still talk about it in my agency and That's clients that were there. And, uh, so we definitely have to kind of figure out another round of that, I think. I but, um, think everyone on the Hodinkee team would love it. <laughs> yeah. No complaints on our end. Um, yeah, it was great having you guys back then, but, um, but that's already been a while. So yeah, I guess it's been been almost a year yeah now. yeah Ooh. yeah wow i can't believe that yeah. uh what have you guys been doing with the artist space you know it's it's been kind of a whirlwind um and we got a new uh director of fine arts at our agency and and we've kind of beefed up the entire department and honestly we had you know a great uh we've had a kind of a, a variety of different um exhibits um Ai Weiwei did a huge exhibit yeah, there yeah, for yeah. which was amazing and in, in addition to a number of other um, installations in the city simultaneously. But since then, we've kind of had an eclectic uh, uh, grouping, I should say, of different types of artists from different fields and not just all one type of artist. Um, but we are trying to uh, really uh, kind of be smart about how we're moving forward with it because we there's so much demand from our clients, not just our fine artists, but our traditional artists like our uh, musicians and our directors and um, just kind of more traditional, you know, artists that you'd think a talent agency represents to kind of cross over and somehow use that space to kind of enhance whatever they're doing, right? So some of them have okay. specific interest in doing fine arts and uh, and actually either paint or sculpt or whatever, which is kind of interesting. Um, but others, like we use the space for live performances, we use the space oh, cool. for, um, you know, all kinds of different uh, ways to exhibit talent right so 
we're still learning. We're kind of still figuring nice. it out. But you know, the Hodinkee event was one. It's a huge success and an example of like a for us non traditional way of showcasing um, something that our talent and our community was really excited about. And nice. and, all, and we were able to pair you guys with an art exhibit during the, the install. Yeah, which so that, worked so that, perfectly. Yeah, it was like. That should be, I mean, everyone's like, wow, this is what I pictured Hodinkee to look like <laughs> physically, right? Um, People but, asked us if they were like, did you guys bring the art? We were like, no, 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 no. no, no. Well, that's, I think the, the, the biggest our... hit was Henry's Porsche in the middle of the room. But yeah. That certainly, yeah, which uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll link up a photo in the show notes, but that definitely got, uh, got a lot of attention. That, that was cool. And I regret not buying some, I both regret and not regret, um, not, you know, not buying some uh, of your awesome vintage pieces, that, you know, that you guys had back We had then. some good stuff yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. So. so you know, we'll we'll talk more about our partnership and kind of how we met, but uh, I, I want to get out in the beginning kind of, I think a lot of people probably don't understand what it is that you do and like what it is that a, a company like UTA actually does. Like, I think people know there's this idea of like, oh, there's there's agencies and they manage talent and like, oh, what does this mean? But like, what does that actually mean? For you know, who don't it's, know? it's a great question. And, and, and even before I got into this, field i didn't know what agencies did and this is you know i've been doing this a long time this is my 23rd year at uta which is okay. a long time so i've been that's awesome and i started in the mailroom you know and and which is nuts to think about but um you know it's it's one of those things that like isn't necessarily um widely known and it's, it's not like talent agencies in general have you know um job postings and career days and whatnot although we're trying to do more outreach to kind of get uh, more kind of an interesting, eclectic, diverse talent pool of people that want to be in the business, but it's still somewhat um, an unknown quantity. But essentially, you know, UTA is one of the big top three or four talent agencies in the world, which typically uh, we represent. You know, the the best actors, writers, directors, producers, um, uh, musicians. I mean, when I first started, we only did the kind of traditional film and TV TV business, but now you know we've expanded to have a fully fully fledged music department um a fully fledged news department in terms of representing mm. journalists and news personalities um and uh we have every a promotion department an alternative department we have you know a department that represents just like interesting social media and uh influencers and creators mm. um and you know we just recently uh, announced that we uh you know got into a sports business we're probably the last big agency of the big three to do it really um in terms of a collaboration that we have uh, we made with rich paul of, of clutch sports right yeah. so lebron's agent um and so he's now we have a significant you know um uh, ownership stake in in his company and he's now become the head of our sports division and it's cool. really exciting so like the reality is that most of these uh artists all want to be in different spaces you know okay. and, and, the, and the idea of like the old school way of like, oh, stay in your lane and be an awesome writer, awesome director, awesome actor, and that's what you're going to do. Um, it just that's not enough. It's not enough to kind of stay competitive, and 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 agencies across the board are really fighting to kind of be more expert in the kind of you know crossover business. That's okay. the best way to put it, right? Yeah. So, and and by the way, the music and the sports business in particular is 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 a highlights that in terms of you see how many athletes in and and musicians that want to do so much and are kind of commanding so much um, kind of attention and presence and beyond, beyond what they're doing, right? So that's what we do as a, an agency. And, and obviously as an agent, we're, you know, I, I particularly work in the TV department. That's my primary focus. 
um, where I, you know, represent, you know, writers, producers, directors, and actors in TV and package and help package television shows and network and cable, both comedy and drama. Um, and, and the basic... And what does that mean to, uh, to package? Well, it would, would, it's both. You The primary focus is representing, you know, the, the creators and the, the, the principles of a show and, and helping them create, you know, or kind of start their careers and then kind of enhance their careers as they start, maybe if they're a writer, um, their first writing gig, their second writing gig, and finally getting to a point in their career where they're ready to kind of create their own show and positioning them to be able to be able to do that in a proper and kind of leveraged way. Um, and then part of what we do is really kind of make introductions and connect dots, right? So like, hey, instead of just going off and selling your own show idea by yourself, why don't you work with this great fancy non-writing producer um, who can help you, who's had a, this experience doing all these shows, or this great fancy director who's awesome and could help you from a standpoint of selling the show, but also can direct the pilot, if not more, or an actor that really doesn't want to be um, an actor of stature typically that doesn't want to just be casting, that they want to be attached to a project from the beginning. They want to be part of the ownership of it. They want to be part of the selling of it. So all of these things come together and we typically, you know, most effective big agencies will kind of individually understand what our artists want and then look at it from a 30,000 foot view and then say, okay, well, we're going to start making these marriages because we think based on what we've heard and based on us knowing our clients really well, we feel like that will come together well. And okay. so a lot of shows that you see um, typically these days are kind of put together. They don't happen haphazardly. They're usually put together by you know a group of agents, group of you know, other representatives, like their managers and their lawyers and um, executives. They're all, you know, no one group should take full credit. Um, but the, but I can take um, some pride in knowing that it typically starts between the artist and the agent, right? They come, they usually get the phone call first saying, hey, I've got this idea and they haven't talked to anyone else about it. And then you can kind of start game planning that and then it just kind of builds from there. So yeah. that's the bigger picture of it. It's obviously just also making deals. Like if you make a deal for an actor or writer, it's like you make that deal, you commission your standard 10% of that deal. That's like the agent's cut. Um, but kind of next level agenting is really kind of macro level, kind of global thinking, how do you expand and, and take that artist to someplace where they don't even know where they want to be yet, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to just kind of doing the, you know, hey, you called me because you want a job. And I, I found you a job. Yeah, That's like the basic level of doing it. Um, but what excites me and, and, and my colleagues at my company is kind of doing the, you know, the next level global way of thinking about, you know, how to put careers together and, and projects together. And, that, and that's more fun. I think one of the things that comes across, you know, both, in this conversation and and also you know as somebody who who follows you on instagram you know seeing as you're attending san diego comic-con or, mm -hmm. or or a big industry event like this is clearly something you're passionate about and that excites you but you said so you started in the mailroom started in the mailroom really know what this was no. kind of what what drew you to this how it's, did you end you up you know here? what i <laughs> it was i was lucky in this and there's always about there's always a level of luck involved in everything i think um but uh you know, I, I, I went to school at UCLA. I grew up in Northern California. I went to school at UCLA. Um, I thought I was going to become a lawyer. You know, I grew up as a latchkey kid, you know, son of, son to immigrant, you know, parents in Northern California um, who would walk home from school every day. And, uh, you know, for a long distance, by the way, we wouldn't let our kids walk, you know, a block. <laughs> I walked miles in fifth and sixth grade and whatever. But, um, and then I, go home and watch TV from like three o'clock to like past 10 o'clock every night, you know, waiting for my parents to come home from, you know, the store they were running. 
And um, little did I know that that was really prepping me, you know, watching all the repeats of everything and all the current shows and um, loving both drama and comedy. And I, me I remember like, you know, you know, specifically watching so much, so much drama, um, you know, that kind of whole kind of Stephen Cannell, uh, Don Belisario, you know, Bochco, um, like, you know, Aaron Spelling. I mean, there's like, the list goes on. Glenn Larson, like all these producers, all their shows for me um, were like just an escape and just kind of, they raised me a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of, I remember Friday nights, that kind of love boat into Fantasy Island uh, block that like just, I had always watched. I don't, like comedies were great too in terms of watching shows like, you know, everything from All in the Family to Sanford and Son to Different Strokes and, I mean, the list goes on. My favorite with Family Ties because I was like, man, like growing up, growing up in a you know, like a Korean American immigrant family, pretty conservative, and mm. so I'm like, wow, there's like, there's just like this really kind of kind of well-to-do white family, and they disagree so much, but they love each other. It's amazing that they get along. But like, I've never seen this before. <laughs> um, and Michael J. Fox was was like my idol. I mean, he was a lot of people's idols, but like watching Family Ties and and kind of wanting to be Alex B. Keaton, not necessarily the conservative you know, Nixon loving Republican, but like that kind of entrepreneurial, like he loved money. He loved to be successful. He loved, didn't matter that his parents didn't love money and that they were like running a, you know, a, they were hippies running a public, you know, TV or radio station or whatever it was. And um, that was a kind of a very motivating kind of uh, influence, kind of almost a mentor for me. And the crazy thing was, and obviously Back to the Future and that whole trilogy was amazing. Um, and then when I got to UTA years later, I got to meet him. He was a client, you know, one of my mentors, Peter Benedict, who I worked for as his assistant and, and is still there as one of the founding members of the agency and a very good friend and uh, mentor to me, like represented Michael J. Fox for all, all of that, my you know, family ties and all the back to future renegotiations and all that. Um, and so meeting him years later was like, I don't necessarily get starstruck, but like that was a big, that was a big moment. Um, but anyway, I was I digress, but like just getting into this business, I, you know, I didn't. I knew nothing about it. This, you have to understand when I got in this business. You know, this is pre entourage. You know, I think Jeremy McGuire maybe just come out, which is on you know, okay. really sports agenting. But I remember reading articles um, in the L.A. Times and weird publications that don't exist anymore, like called Spy Magazine, and about agents, right? And we read about CAA and Mike Ovitz, who you know was the kind of the dominating big super agent. Um, back then and reading about, you know, how CA was built and all his kind of Armani clad foot soldiers walking up and down Wilshire Boulevard, which kind of scared the crap out of me, but I'm like, that's kind of interesting at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, but I really had no idea. That's not what motivated me. I really got, was motiva motivated out of uh, being uncomfortable. You know, and they say, you know, I was, I, my, my past was, was set to become a lawyer. And after UCLA, I moved back to San Francisco because that was my dream to be living in being a living in San Francisco and being a lawyer up there. And um, and ultimately, I, I enrolled at, at Hastings and dropped out. I mean, I took a year off after college. I took a gap year back before gap years were kind of cool <laughs> um, because I just didn't want to roll into law school right away. Yeah. Um, and I worked as a paralegal at a law firm in San Francisco, and I realized I hated it, but I couldn't tell my mom that uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore because this is what they gave up. They sacrificed so much to give my brother right. and my sister and I, like, better opportunities and here I am trying to be, you know, a millennial before millennials even existed, right? right. Saying, you oh, know, that's cool. I don't want to do what you guys want me to do. Yeah. Um, I'll take your off. It'll exactly. Be fine. Yeah. But, uh, but it was an eye-opening thing. I was very lucky to kind of have that 
experience at a law firm for a year as a paralegal before I enrolled in law school um, because it just was eye-opening. And I, I'm one of those people that if I'd gone through a law school, I don't know if I could have pulled out at that point. I, I mean, I, there was so much sacrifice around me. I would just learn to love the law. It'd been like an arranged marriage or something. But there was a moment where I just realized, oh my God, I just have to pull the ripcord, rip the bandaid, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and so I was able to do it. And I, you know, freaked my parents out. I moved back down to LA since I went to school down here. Um, so it wasn't that big of a reach for me to come to LA at that point. And then a lot of my friends who I went to school with are like, you should, who are now in the entertainment business, like starting out in like being young assistants and young coordinators. They're like, you, you should really check out being an agent. I said, why? Because I can help you negotiate your Carly steal and I can get you help, you know, <laughs> I go on Craigslist for you and negotiate whatever couch you're buying yeah, better. Of course. They're like, yeah, you're really good at yeah. that. I'm like, maybe. And they're like, oh, then you love TV and film and you really love TV. And I'm like, okay, well maybe. Not knowing anything about the business. I mean, the film business is like self-evident, like to most people, you buy a ticket, that's where the money comes from to pay for everything, right? To go to right. movies. But back then before Netflix and streaming services and everything else, it was really the broadcast game was it. Nobody really understood that wasn't in the business, how the TV business worked. I mean, you see commercials, it's for free. What's going on? Because I had no real plan for the first time in my life, you know, and because I was you know, uncomfortable, they say, you know, comfort is the, you know, is get, what's what's the analogy where that, you know, basically the, the biggest enemy to progress is comfort or whatever the yeah, analogy is, yeah, right? Yeah. So I was not comfortable and I and I needed to figure out the next phase of my life and I'm like, screw it. I don't know why, but I will try um, becoming or looking into working at a talent agency. And everyone said, it's a great experience. And it is because it's a great, um, it's like really kind of uh, being in almost a fraternity or sorority, right? Because you get into a, a system where there's like 20 or 30 at the minimum, at least when I did it. Um, and now there's much more people in a mailroom class at any given time. Um, and you're all kind of struggling. You're all kind of trying to figure it out. You don't know what you want to do. Everyone's like, oh, do I want to become a talent agent? Do I want to become a lit agent? Do I want to, you know, work in movies or television? Do I, what do I want to do? Um, and you meet people along the way that become lifelong friends. I mean, I, I never went to sleepaway camp, but I guess it's some, something similar to that, right? Yeah. So, um, You say a mailroom class. Yeah, I think the idea of like, oh, I started in the mailroom is like, it's almost become a, a trope. What does it actually mean? To I mean, work it's in the like, you know, is it, what, is it what I think it it's is? It's kind of what you think else? it is. I mean, if you, if, again, not to ref, overly reference Michael J. Fox, but if you see the movie, The Secret of My Success, he starts in the mailroom and yeah. works his way up. He also sleeps with somebody, you know, the boss of the wife's boss or something, which is not, <laughs> not what happened. Uh, but uh, at least for me. But um, but yeah, the, the whole idea of starting in the mailroom and, um, understanding how a company works from the ground level, right? You, you're at the heartbeat of like the logistical center of this building and company and seeing, you know, everything from delivering the Hollywood Reporter and Variety every morning to every agent and their mail and the faxes that would come through because it's pre-email when I started. I don't want to date myself. Pre, you know, you know, cell phones being ubiquitous completely, right? So everything was really hand-delivered. You know, faxes would come over through the central office mailroom and we have to deliver everything messenger services we take things to our clients and you know so you met like fancy actors and directors when you kind of drop things off delivering them you know like back then if you didn't have a thompson guide i don't know if your listeners know what that <laughs> is but pre-google maps there was a book that you typically go to costco or somewhere to buy which is a huge basically book of maps that were detailed okay right so you look up a street address 
and then go, go to page 54, quadrant C4, and that's where it is. And that's how you'd have to figure out how to get there because there's no internet <laughs> to figure it out. So everyone had one of those standard issue um, or you were screwed, you just didn't know how to get anywhere. Um, but yeah, the mailroom, you know, you start, when I started, I was making 250 bucks a week before taxes, working 70 to 80 hours a week and being a huge sponge, learning everything, absorbing everything, just the look and feel and vibe and of how the business worked and the kind of the rhythms of the, how the agents would talk to each other and the buyers and their clients. And so much of, so much of it is kind of really absorbing the culture of Hollywood, right? In terms of how business is done, in addition to like understanding how do you make a TV deal? How do you make a movie deal? How do you make an actor deal? Those things are, are some of the most teachable things. You know, you either have street smarts or you don't. You either have passion or you don't. You know, you either can kind of walk the walk and talk the talk in a way, or you can't. And yeah. and yes, you can enhance those things. And, and definitely through a mailroom, everyone's green. And there are people you meet in the mailroom and be like, oh, you're never going to be an agent. And they become agents later because it's a baptism by fire. Like you, you mm -hmm. kind of, you get there. It's like, it's like boot camp. Like you show up like, Oh my God. And then you come out, yeah. you know, an adult. So, um, that there's definitely a part of that, but yeah, you learn. And then the next step up is becoming an assistant. So, you know, when you're in the mailroom, you start interviewing the only people that like when I hired, I just hired a new assistant recently and her name is Hannah. And she just, she came out of the mailroom and we only hire assistants that come through the mailroom, right? So it's a training program, but any, any assistant in the mailroom, is eligible to be an assistant anywhere. And that person, once they get, if they become promoted to become an agent, they can go up all the way. You know, we have, you know, a board of directors of, I believe, five agents. And I think three of them came out of the mailroom, like from years and years ago, right? Um, which is exciting. I mean, it's like you can, that whole mailroom to boardroom mentality of like, it's that's a cool thing. It's like, a cool that thing. It doesn't exist most places. It, it doesn't exist most places. And um, it's really cool to be able to, know that you have upside professionally immediately, right? Like basically you are your own worst enemy or your best own agent in a way okay. um, by kind of navigating the process. And, and so, and Hollywood ultimately is, it's truly an apprenticeship for most jobs. Like there's no middle management really, right? So you're either an assistant or you're an executive of some kind. So when you're an assistant, once you get out of the mailroom, at least at an agency, um, you really are apprenticing under somebody that, is training you, right? Even though some bosses are worse than others and some are <laughs> not very good at mentoring, just by working for them, you're learning how they operate, how they move, how they kind of, you know, communicate all of it. And so by the time you're done on that desk, you should really know, like I used to say, tell my assistants, like if you know what every single phone call on my phone sheet is for, at that point, and, and you can predict the calls I'm gonna make next-ish, then at that point you're all, you're kind of ready to get promoted, right? Because you can understand. It's like most of the time you're like, I don't know, I'm just kind of, you know, holding the ship together or whatever. Yeah. But the assistants that can kind of almost operate their boss's office even when they're on vacation. Oh no, I got it. I, I talked to the clients. I handled them. And I've followed the payments over here. And the, this executive called for this. I got it. I know where to get it. Whatever. They're ready. You know. They're and and the good news is that we shift around our assistants to work for multiple agents so they can get more than one style. You don't want somebody just molded in one. They want to, you want them to be exposed to multiple different styles of agenting and then kind of come up with their own best way of doing it themselves. But mm. it's a, it's not for everybody. You know, it's, it's a, it's a lot of hard work. There are politics because there's only so many slots every year and there's people angling and there's, you know, there's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, you know, it's, um, but I really believe no matter what that I can't think of a single situation where someone that really 
had the skill set, and really loved the business, didn't get promoted ultimately in some way, shape, or form, right? It's not like, sorry, you're amazing, you're fantastic, we're just gonna let you go. Usually there's something wrong if that happens. Like, okay. like you say that they're great, <laughs> but there's, <laughs> but maybe, you know what? I just don't see them being an agent for X, Y, or Z reason. But the people that you really see, you make room for, ultimately, okay. you know? So anyway, that's, uh, yeah, so that's, the mailroom process is, I think still, it's kind of like a tried and true way of doing it, you know? It's mm. um, it's kind of like as a you know a big baseball fan, it's like the scouting way of doing it. It's not like the sabermetrics way. You kind of you right, still right, have right. to see them go through and 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 kind of check their egos at the door. These Ivy League school kids are coming in thinking that yeah. they're just going to get these great jobs, and that they show up and they're pushing a mail cart, and you know they're being kind of you know tortured by. Sometimes assistants that are younger than them, depending if they already went to law school and came here or had uh, get a, got a master's, and it's like you just, you have to check all that at the door. You know, it's about okay, once you're here, you know, what's your point of view? How passionate are you? You know, do you really want this? And you know, and are you willing to make sacrifices to get what you want? Because this is a very unlike a lot of jobs, like being a talent agent, or you know, really being a Hollywood talent agent. You can only do this pretty much in one place in the world. I mean, you can do it in New York too, right? Um, you can do it in LA and yes, we have offices in other places, but like they're like a mu really for music and other kind of disciplines. But to be a film or TV agent, you kind of have to be in LA or New York. And there's really only like four or five places that really do it well. Okay. And so it's as a result, like, like the companies that are in it, like mine, the bigger companies, you know, it's like they're able to be a little bit more picky and, and, and yeah. present a process that's more selective. So interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that's that's like you Sorry, said. Sorry, long-winded. No, no, no. Like you said, it's it's a it's a thing that's pretty opaque to people who are not in it, and so I think it's it's fascinating to get yeah. a peek, peek under the hood. I mean, it's still worth watching Entourage and Swimming with Sharks, and you know, uh, you know, even like movies like Devil Wears Prada, which like you think Meryl Streep is being so crazy, right, in terms of requests, yeah. but they're Hollywood bosses, both you know, older agents and older film and TV executives that act. Not exactly like her character in that movie, but yeah. like, like that, yeah. and like, and you have to understand, like, your as an assistant, your boss is your your single and most important client, and if you okay. and if you're able to handle that client, yeah, then you start to understand. Okay, now I can build a client list, and you know, you understand how it really, really what it really means to be in the trenches to do what you need to do to be resourceful and and think both kind of creatively and street street smart wise and intelligently about getting something done, you yeah. know? Um, anyway, so it's, it, all those things have bits of truth in them in terms of those kinds of shows that highlight agents and whatnot. But, um, but at the same time, the, it, the business has definitely got more professionalized over the years. Like back yeah. when I started, you know, more crazy shit hap happened just in terms of like, if you were to read books like The Mail Room and whatnot and hear old stories about like, you know, the, like back in the day, um, you you get you people will just get shocked looking at those now, yeah. but um, but the old the the old mentality of like still having to, you know, work your butt off and like check your ego at the door and honestly just you know make sure that you love it because if you don't, there's like ten other people if not more waiting to take your job that still kind of exists. Yeah, you know. So, I just want to say, Devil Wears Prada, the single most referenced movie on this podcast. Really? I think this might be the we've done what. At the time we're recording this, we've done over 50 episodes. I think it's been referenced 
five or six times now. That's amazing. So yeah, it's the number one. It's the official movie of uh, Hodinkee Radio. <laughs> is, uh, Devil Wears Prada. But, Excellent. Uh, Love it. You know, one of the things that strikes me is is through everything you've been saying is it's a lot about the sort of like culture of Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. there's there's a way of doing things. There's the ways the sort of like rules of engagement that people have that mm-hmm. you can't really learn unless you're you're immersed in them. And lots of places have sort of like subcultures and and rules and and things like that. And one place that I I think that manifests itself funnily enough is is in watches in in a funny way. Like Hollywood has its yeah. own little watch culture that that is different and it's different than L.A. watch culture more broadly. But like, what have you found to be as as a watch guy? Like, what have you found to be the sort of like watch culture of of Hollywood these days? That's a great question. Great segue. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> that's what, that's what they pay me the big bucks. Yes. For, yeah. Um, you know. It's interesting because when I first started getting into watches, you know, in Hollywood, I, I hadn't, I hadn't really noticed watches very much, other than you know when they would show up on the red carpets and, um, and you know you'd see a couple of ads and like the in the trades and whatnot, but it wasn't really something that a lot of my you know coworkers or you know executive friends and I or even clients would talk about. It wasn't, and, and then really when. It kind of cro- crossed over more into mainstream, at least for me, when my perception of it, um, my first love was Panerai, you know, and and it became. And when would that have been? That was, gosh, like right in the early two thousands. Okay. Like in yeah. two thousand, I think my first kind of real watch purchase was like in two thousand four or five. Okay. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. Which was my first watch was a Luminor Panerai Luminor Pam ninety. It was like power okay. reserve watch. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I just, at the time it was like the perfect watch for me, of course. But, um, but when, when that kind of, it, that was something that a lot of my colleagues and some of my friends were into, um, and I just decided to take the plunge and then people started talking about it and, and either fortunately or for, unfortunately it kind of also kind of, um, uh, just came about the same time of the big watch craze. I want to say like yeah. you, you're seeing a lot of bigger watches, because my next watch after that was a big pilot and okay. I've owned and then sold like a ton of big pilots, but I can never <laughs> pull them off. I can never pull them off. I have very s- small uh, Asian wrists. I can't pull it off. Um, I feel the same way. That's a watch though that I feel like a lot of guys with smaller wrists want to make work. Oh man, if and they like, came out with a 40 millimeter to 42 yeah. millimeter version, I would just be all yeah. over it. But like, I just right. can't listen, do it. Listen up, IWC. <laughs> I just can't do it. But um but but in terms of the cultures, since, I mean, and obviously everything just kind of, you know, in my opinion, has gotten exponentially um, more exciting and it kind of has exploded in Hollywood, in my opinion. And a lot of people are just really, you know, not just into watches from a kind of, hey, that's cool because I saw that AP on Entourage, but into it just from a standpoint of that's really great. That's a statement. That's like a real, real kind of, you know, uh, that shows how your style in a way that's not just surface level. You know, it's like, it shows like your real passion for something. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the part where I just got even more excited because it wasn't just about, oh, well, what kind of expensive car or what kind of expensive kind of jewelry or whatever or kind of, you know, suits are you wearing or whatever. It's like, hey, let's talk about those watches and especially people that are into more vintage pieces or just, or just wanted to come up to me and talk to me about their watch that their dad gave them or what have you, right? It wasn't about like going down to Geary's and buy the buying the most expensive Rolex or whatever. It was, let's talk about what, you know, what you're into and what, what moves you in you in a way. So, um, but that said, it's, and you know, it's also 
really grown like the watch culture in Hollywood to kind of not just to be a, a man's domain. It's really men and women across the board that, that talk to me about watches all the time. I, somehow I become like an unofficial watch guy in Hollywood, <laughs> it, definitely my company, but all over a town in a strange way. And um, so people call me all the time and say, hey, I want, I'm thinking about this or can you help me get that or whatever. Um, and oftentimes, you know, if I'm not avoiding their calls completely, <laughs> um, you know, it, I it really have to judge it. Number one, obviously, if they're a good friend of mine, I'll help them no matter what, whatever, whatever the motivation. But, but you know, if it's somebody that was referred to me, you know, a friend of a friend, whatever, like if, if they're just doing it because they think it's cool because somebody else is wearing it and they're not really into it, like I'll try to, you know. I'll try to get them more educated. I'll honestly send them to Ho- send them to Hodinky or what have you. Thank you. Um, which is so true to really educate themselves before they just jump into a, you know, four or five figure purchase right away. It just doesn't make yeah. sense, right? Because, and usually I try to weed them out because if it may just be a, a very short, you know, blip of a phase for them if they just yeah. kind of saw something that someone was wearing at a at a sporting event or a concert or whatever, right? Or red carpet. So, but. You know, it, it's the good news is I, I don't feel that the traditional film and TV business in Hollywood um, is overly uh, blingy. I think, mm. you know, most of the the kind of enthusiasts and collectors that I now know um, in Hollywood are pretty, they're kind of, we're kind of like-minded. Like it's not, it's not about the blingiest watch. It's about the cool, like what, what moves you, what's cool, you know, the brands that, you know, um, were cool a while ago. Some of them are still cool, I guess, in Hollywood. And but but kind of the the most um, uh, enduring brands have kind of stayed that way. And you know, and most of the pieces that people like are honestly, in a good way, more reflective of their own taste mm. uh, within kind of what you know the overall kind of aesthetic is. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you know, I have my favorites, and I'm biased. So you know, I'll I'll tell people to go. You know, hey, go. Go, go look at this Rolex or go look at this paddock or go look at this AP and, you know, or, you know, I still love Panerai and IWC. And for the, if, if, <laughs> if some big dude comes and says they want some <laughs> great sport watch, I'll say, yeah. have you looked at the big pilot? But, um, you can wear it vicariously through <laughs> Exactly. Through That's a hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, but, uh, but it's fun. It's fun because, you know, when I'm oftentimes, you know, because our office is right around the, the corner from Rodeo Drive, essentially. Yeah. That, you know, a client or a friend will say, hey, can can you go with me or can you help me? And I'll just go, you know what? Yeah, let's just go down and walk walk down and we'll hit the boutiques right down Rodeo and go down to, you know, check out the pieces. And it's just fun to kind of, like you said, live vicariously through them just from the ex- discovery of it when you see them put it on. And, you know, it, it's fun, you know. Maybe I should just give this all up and sell watches. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're pretty good at what you do. So that... Uh... But do you, what, have there been any watches that like you've been either in a meeting or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, meeting with a new, a new client or, you know, kind of in your normal day-to-day life where a watch popped up and you were just like, whoa, like I did not expect to see that here. You know, yes. The answer is yes. It's funny because, um, I work with some or a number of our music, music clients, musicians, um, and when they're wearing those watches, none of them phase me. Like none of those okay. stand. I mean, they're amazing pieces and diamond encrusted nautiluses and all this kind of stuff. But like, it's usually like the executive or even like a writer client or director client or whoever just comes up showing or comes up wearing something that I just didn't expect. Like a, you know, 
like a like a vintage Daytona, and I didn't yeah. know that you know they were even you know remotely passionate or interested or um you know I or something that's just not a Rolex or an Omega, which tend to be the most ubiquitous amongst people that are just getting into the watch business, at least okay. I, at least or in the watch industry in terms of from Hollywood, I've seen. Um, and not that I have anything against, I mean, I, I love Rolex in particular, but but it's usually kind of like the ones that are um, just unexpected from a standpoint, it's not the most expensive piece, right? Like if, you know, I saw, I did see someone wearing a Grand Seiko the other day, and I was really? like, wow, that was pretty cool. Not That's the cool. Not the cool one that you reviewed recently, the, the slim <laughs> blue watch that I'm now obsessed with because of you. Um, You're welcome. But, uh, but just like, something like the fact that they knew what it was and the fact that they were like, yeah, I saw this piece and I was traveling and I was in London. I bought it there. I'm like, wow, um, that that's cool. Like, it's yeah. not about, they didn't go out and have to go to, you know, the, the AP boutique and buy the most expensive, you know, Royal Oak. They just, right. they bought something that really spoke to them and they right. were somewhere and they moved them. And that, that was cool. That, that always surprises me because it's not any one type of person. I guess maybe when I first started, like I was, thought that they were, you know, watch collectors were kind of really way more than like-minded. They were kind of one race or one kind of people or whatever. Yeah. And, and what I found very quickly and even more so through the business is that, yeah, we all have our kind of, um, common threads in terms of what, why we're in, you know, what brought us together to be in that meeting or to be in that room or be, you know, in that same place together. But so much of how they people express themselves through watches, I, I, it surprises me all the time. And so, yes, it happens where I'll see be in a meeting or go to lunch or whatever, and then someone's wearing something, and it's usually the the not like, hey, it's not necessarily the hey, you're wearing this cool ceramic Daytona or you're wearing this cool, you know, Patek Nautilus or whatever. Uh, it's like those kind of watches that are a little bit more personal, mm -hmm. right? Well, um, or specific. It's, it's almost like a secret handshake, yeah. right? There's there's nothing secret about wearing an awesome Nautilus or a great Royal right. Oak or a, you know, awesome Rolex. Like mm -hmm. there's, they can be great things, but there's nothing sort of like knowing or like insidery about it. Right. Whereas like if a guy shows up to a meeting wearing a Grand Seiko, you know, there's something there. Like there's something that's not evident on the surface. hundred percent, you know, and it's cause like, yeah, you know, it's, it just shows that, you know, I'm, I'm an, I have an obsessive personality. When I get into something, I really get into it. Right. So, um, and I don't expect everyone to always feel the same way about their passions, but when I meet somebody that's like-minded in whatever they're doing, and have about, and they they've clearly evaluated something in in, the, in a very kind of serious manner, which I would do in my own way, like 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 a Grand Seiko is, no matter how you slice any of those pieces, they're great deals vis-a-vis -vis relative to you know their competitors, and yeah. so like and how great and functional they are and beautiful they are, and and again I'm just recently got into it again because of you and others, but um, it like, it's, it's, it's more of a thinking man's watch to me. It's like, yeah. wow, you've really thought about this and the kind of the value proposition there is amazing. And that's a huge part of it. Yes. It's great to have these amazing kind of, you know, kind of universally lauded pieces that are, that are fantastic. Like a, you know, like a, the ceramic Daytona, if you still have it, I'm still going to notice it. Right. It's like, right. wow, you got yeah, that yeah, piece. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, it doesn't mean that you haven't thought about that watch. I'm sure you figured out a way and had the right connection to get that piece. But I have equal respect for somebody that got that great Grand Seiko or got like whatever, like that vintage piece that, that they've been seeking, you know, and that really moved them. Um, 
or someone that took the time to get you know, the, the cool tutor that just came out or whatever, you know, whatever it is, like it's not about the price point. It's about what do they, what they put into um, uh, their own kind of mind in terms of their passion and their kind of drive to go get a certain piece. Yeah. Um, and that's cool. That always makes me, because always, I'll have more questions for that person typically than the person that just has a great, you know, you know, Rolex sub on, which is yeah. always awesome. Yeah, no, no. But no. it's just, I have way more of those conversations be, that become kind of the same than, yeah. hey, you have something com completely off the beaten path a little bit from most of the people around us. Let's talk about that. You know? Yeah. So. What are some of the questions you said people come to you looking for advice or with questions? What What are the things <laughs> that you get asked the most? Like, what are the questions that we can just, from now on, you can just direct people to this episode. Uh, no, what are the questions no. you get the most? <laughs> um, well, number one, the first question is like, can you help me get a discount on the Rolex or Paddock or AP or insert brand name here? That's the number one question because especially agent agents are, you know, they think about money. So yeah. like they- <laughs> Nothing wrong know, there, yeah. There's nothing wrong there. Um, another question I get is, is it too flashy for me to get X watch? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, interesting. is it like, is that if I go get this particular- rose gold or white gold with diamonds or no diamonds or what have you. Um, you know, or by the way, just particular pieces. Like it doesn't have to be white gold. It could be like, hey, if I go get buy this Richard meal, you know, watch, is that going to be something that people are going to be like, oh, like, yeah. you know, it's going to forget this Yeah, guy. You yeah. know, same, by the way, same thing with cars. Like I've been asked because I'm, I'm a gray hair in my office. Like people are like, hey, if I pull up in the, you know, the new, you know, whatever, Porsche GT3 Touring or whatever and, is, is are the partners going to think I'm making, making too much money or, you know, whatever, like yeah, there's yeah, yeah. those kind of <laughs> questions, you know? And the irony is, is that it comes down to, I say this with both, with all of it, it comes down to passion. If you love, if, if you're a known collector, if you are a known person to like be into it, then you're fine. Yeah. But if you're just somebody that woke up one day and decided like, you know, you're going to have a midlife crisis and buy the flashiest Porsche you're going to get, you can find then you will be looked at kind of differently. I'm right. sorry. I mean, people talk in a, yeah. an office environment. So yeah. it's um, also like you're working in an office full of smart people yes. for whom a big part of their job is reading other people, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So like, that's Correct. kind of like the worst place to try to like put on airs. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. But you know, the, the toughest, the, the, the toughest question actually is, hey, I, I'm looking at Watch X. I know nothing about watches or know very little about watches. I'm looking at Watch X and I love it but people are telling me that I shouldn't buy that brand. I should go buy Y instead. What should I do? Mm. And that's a really hard response because, you know, you, there are so many great looking watches. I mean, granted, yes, we are now, you know, as, you know, passionate watch collectors, we're, we've all been ingrained with and kind of hit over the head with like many reasons why we should love certain watches and many of which we agree with, many of which we agree with kind of passionately, many of which we agree with kind of cerebrally, right? Or what have you. Um, but, to most, what we forget sometimes is to most newbies, they're not thinking about it. They just go, that that looks great to me. That feels great yeah, on my wrist. Right. Even though it's more expensive or less expensive or whatever. And then all of a sudden somebody tells you from outside, oh, you shouldn't be looking at that watch. Or, oh, no, 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 no. That's not one of the Holy Trinity or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And, and I'm, by the way, I've been guilty of that. You know, without For even sure. thinking. I mean, we, we all yeah, are. Without, yeah, without even thinking about it to especially closer friends of mine. And it makes me, I have to stop sometimes and go, you know, I can't do that. Like they have to find their own, I can give them guidelines. I can say, they'll ask me what's typical or whatever, but like, 
just because someone's buying a watch or wants to buy a watch that's not from a traditional watchmaking brand, but still from a fine place, yeah, or whatever, like they shouldn't. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't just be about resale. It shouldn't just be about what other people think. Um, you know, and that's the hardest part because I may have I may have my own opinions about it, but like really governing that in a way that's not overly heavy handed in terms of trying to put too much of my two cents on them yeah. is something I have to be more careful of because otherwise yeah. I can, they can, I've overly influenced them, Yeah, you know? And like, it's just, be, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard thing. That's the, that's where I have to be, you know, with some people that are really close, I treat them like family. Like, yeah, I'll tell them, don't, <laughs> don't think, do, do yeah. as I, do don't as I that, say, yeah. that. do as don't I say, do and, and completely don't ask me questions. But, um, but honestly, for the most part, I don't want someone to, feel like they can't uh, they feel bad about liking something uh, yeah. there's, some, there's a certain design element on this watch i really loved but people are like oh you know that's a third tier or whatever like come on no make so. somebody happy and make somebody happy. yes like, exactly that's what matters right exactly you know? or at the very least like say hey you may love that but have you really looked at everything you know have you really looked and just make sure that you know hold on to that visceral response but then make sure you look at everything because no matter what you're buying it's still an investment but both either financially or just risk time. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're really kind of have seen and gotten a, the correct sample size, so to speak, yeah. to make a decision. And that usually is a great um, softer, indirect way of saying maybe that's not the right one to get. <laughs> um, but again, it's like you know, it's like to, to each his or her own. Like you have to, you still have to love it. You know, like I don't want anyone to buy something just because they 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 were told to buy something and they just never wear it. it sits on their you know desk or they're safe and that's that's the biggest tragedy right so yeah so is the watch you have on right now has that been getting a, a lot of risk time well lately? i just got <laughs> i this is not planned at all okay. but i just got this yesterday and i waited maybe over a year for it can you tell people what it is it's a <laughs> after all of that it's a it's a rolex it's a new ceramic rolex to uh root beer and, and full rose i guess i can yeah. the it's i love it it's beautiful. I, it looks great. I, I love it. I almost, I almost got the two tone. Okay. Because it was just a little bit easier to get than this piece, yeah. ironically. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm gonna hold off. You know, I, I can pull off the full rows usually when I wear a suit or go into the office yeah. or whatever. And I just didn't want, you know, I just never I, again the two tone. That would be the only two tone I ever was like, oh yeah, I want that piece. But I wasn't gonna own both. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of in love. <laughs> so you think that's getting the majority of the uh, it's gonna, risk time? It's going to get some great risk time. I'm, you know, I'm. I don't really. I'm careful with my watches, but this one I'm going to be a little bit extra careful with because I really want it to. I mean, man, like it's. There's it's, something about those center links when they're polished like that, and they're like not all scratched up. There's something about it that they just it really glows. Oh my god! Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because and it's just this particular watch. You know, with the the the. The bicolor ceramic bezel, but the fact that they put the rose, I, I guess typically they put platinum inside the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. In the bezel, but they yeah. put, it's either colored platinum, I guess, or rose gold, or I don't know. But like the fact that they're not white inside and they match right. the rose and the way the black and the brown are colors just perfectly kind of complement the watch. It's just one of the best kind of overall precious metal uh, combinations I've ever seen Rolex do. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a fantastic watch. I mean, so yeah, it's, you know, and I, I own other precious metal pieces and I love them, but 
it's, this is gonna be hard to take off <laughs> <laughs> i mean this time of year it's it's a good time too it's a it's a sports watch yep. the sun's out like yep. the gold will look great you know it's, it's i mean i guess in la i say it's this time of year i guess it's, it's always LA's sunny here always and sunny and yeah. hot and what's i don't know if it's me just getting old but like i have to have a bracelet or a rubber strap i can't yeah. do leather straps anymore and and i love them all and i always look at them and i'm not trying to and that's an it's a really unfair over characterization of a lot of great watches, right? Oh, yeah, no, no, strap. Okay. But like, like if I can put a fifty-one seventy P on a rubber strap, tell me if there's a rubber strap for that watch because then I'll wear that watch. But like, otherwise, maybe you wear it once or twice, you wear it out and whatever. Like, yeah. And I and and I'm in an office environment. I should wear it more, but I I don't want to worry about sweating into my watches. And I don't even. Yeah. It's not like it's a problem for me, but like I'm just more comfortable wanting to wear the watch. Yeah. If it's more comfortable on. Yeah. So if it's, if it's over 65, 70 degrees, it's bracelets for me. Totally. No, no By question. the way, again, not a pre-determined um, plug. The Hodinkee straps are, <laughs> are are better that and more comfortable than a lot of stock straps, especially from Paddock. And that makes it a little bit more wearable. So I've, I've swapped out a couple of those on my watches, but like, I'm kind of close to maybe moving some of those yeah. strap only watches. Yeah. Like it's just, I, cause I just don't wear them. Yeah. I basically, I wear straps in the fall and winter. Otherwise it's, it's yeah. bracelets or yeah. maybe a NATO. Like I'll wear a NATO but see, in but, the summer. But, but, but you're, like, you're an East coast guy. Winter yeah. for us, this is winter, you know, it's I like, know, that's, true. <laughs> that's true. It's for the record. It's like 75 degrees outside. So, uh, yeah. Which compared to the New York summer feels like winter. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, exactly. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any pieces? I mean, I guess you just got this, but any, any pieces you've been eyeing lately, anything that just kind of like stands out to you? well the stuff that i'm eyeing it's like it's just impossible to get but like you know the my 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 grail piece right now for whatever it's worth is is um the uh the ap perpetual ceramic right so it's the the full in ceramic black or white. in black yeah. in black um i watch this incredible i just oh. i saw it in person once and i fell in love and i've always been a fan of ceramic although i don't think i own any ceramic right now other than whatever ceramic is on these Rolexes. <laughs> but um, that piece just blew me away. The way that that was finished. A lot of ceramic to me sometimes on, on a variety of different brands feels a little bit too much. I don't know. Even if it's finished well, it just doesn't feel, um, feels more toyish to me. I don't yeah. know why. But um, but on that, uh, the AP ceramic, the way it's finished is like, oh my God, it's like next level. So, but it's an impossible watch to get. I've also- They're tough, yeah. I mean, like everyone that's a Paddock fan, I'm sure has been. I've been eyeing the uh, the fifty seven twenty six blue dial. Yeah, I kind of missed out on all of them, like an idiot. Um, <laughs> that's not true. I have I I have, a, I have a couple, but like it's not like I wish I had. I, I don't have the traditional blue dial like fifty seven twelve or fifty seven eleven. I just don't have okay. that, and I'm fine with it because I have other pieces that make up for it. But the fifty seven twenty six, I think, was. I did for some reason when it was just in the gray dial or in the white dial, it just well, didn't do it for me. But that yeah. blue dial really works on that watch. Yeah. So I would agree. But who knows? Right. Who knows if I ever get that watch? Well, if anybody listening knows uh, <laughs> knows where to find either of those, let us let us know. Drop uh, us a note. Uh, thanks for what you're doing, this man. It's good to catch up and absolutely. Uh, hear a little bit about about what life's like I in hope, Hollywood these days. I hope it wasn't too much of a crash and burn. But no, nah, this is perfect. <laughs> this is awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you.
This week's episode was recorded at Network Studios in Los Angeles, California, and at Hodinki HQ in New York City. It was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. 